Mysterious Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the mystery and transcendence of cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is Jonty Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the show, we're going back to the genre that we started this show off with on episode one. The horror genre is something that I've been immersed in for my entire adult life and back into my teenage years before that. And when we talk about horror cinema, there are a number of films that are inarguably titans of the genre. This week's film is one of those films. It was a monumental financial success in the early 1970s and is often referred to as the scariest film of all time. What isn't said enough about this film, however, is that it's also one of the greatest films of all time. I'm of course talking about William Friedkin's adaptation of William Peter Blatty's classic horror novel, The Exorcist. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The one hope. The only hope. The exorcist. Before we begin, this film is notoriously upsetting and controversial, so please be warned. This episode won't shy away from the controversial subject matter, and will also include some pretty upsetting language coming from the mouth of a child. We're also going to be looking at accounts of real events in this episode that are potentially upsetting for some listeners. There will also obviously be spoilers for the whole film. You have been warned. As always, a quick recap of the film taken from the revised second edition of Mark Kermode's book, published by the BFI in their BFI Bond Classic series. The film centres on actress and single mother, Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn, whose daughter Regan, played by Linda Blair, develops serious behavioural problems while they're living in Georgetown, Washington, D.C. A barrage of medical and psychological tests fail to explain either the savage transformation of Regan's personality or the violent shaking of her bed. Further horrors ensue as Burke Dennings, the director of Chris's current film, is found dead near the McNeil home, and a detective, Lieutenant Kinderman, surmises that Dennings was murdered, then thrown out of Regan's bedroom window. In a desperate bid to save her daughter, the avowedly atheist Chris 
turns to young Father Damien Karras, a local priest of faltering faith, who finally agrees to perform an exorcism. Karras is joined by the ageing exorcist Father Lancaster Merrin, who dies of heart failure during the ceremony. Devastated by Merrin's death and enraged by Regan's taunts, Karras commands the demon to leave her and enter his body before throwing himself to his death through Regan's window. His sacrifice is her salvation. The Exorcist is a film that's reputation precedes it, both for better and for worse. Therefore, I didn't actually see The Exorcist until I was about 19. I was too scared. Everywhere I looked online, the predominant discourse about this film was just how scary it was, and how nobody was the same after seeing it. On top of that, I grew up in a Christian family, so the thematic material of demonic possession and external evil felt possibly a little too taboo to feel comfortable engaging properly with until I was a certain age. By the time I finally saw the film, I was starting to become pretty familiar with the horror genre and a lot of its tropes, so I was primed in my head for what I thought scary was. That first experience of seeing The Exorcist was transformative for two main reasons. It redefined what I thought a scary film looked like, but was also one of the best films that I'd ever seen. It was terrifying to me in a way that was woven deeper into the film than simply its aesthetic and genre elements. Thematically and philosophically, it resonated with me deeply, and therefore was frightening and upsetting at a gut level. I've now seen The Exorcist more times than I can be bothered to count, and while it still holds up as scary, more importantly for me, it holds up as a perfect piece of filmmaking. Its narrative is completely watertight. It's thematically resonant. It is an absolute masterclass in screen acting. And the tactile, hand-woven feel to the technical qualities of the film imbues it with a feeling of timelessness. I've also gone back to the novel that this film is adapted from by William Peter Blatty many times over the years, as well as its sequel, Legion. At some point on this show, we will also cover The Exorcist 3, the film adaptation of Legion, directed by Blatty himself. Suffice it to say, The Exorcist is hugely important for me in all formats, not just this film. We already covered much of the cultural context that this film comes out of in our Chinatown episode a few weeks ago, so I encourage you to check out that episode if you haven't already. Again, from Kermode's book. At the beginning of the 1970s, America was an anxious country. Where only recently the Air Force had dropped food parcels for the crowds of beautific Woodstock revellers, now the army was shooting American college kids protesting the Vietnam War. Hippies once tolerated found themselves tarred with the same brush as Charles Manson, the cult murderer who made shaggy hair, sex and drugs synonymous with brutal killing and pagan sacrifice. Even the government was unravelling inexorably as President Richard Nixon became increasingly implicated in a string of suspicious, even criminal, subterfuges. By late 1973, the presidency was on the brink of collapse, and walking wounded from Vietnam 
were everywhere in evidence, and the only thing America was exporting with any success was paranoia. At around the same time, a minor storm was brewing in Europe. Pope Paul VI had issued a statement expressing his deepening concern about demonic influences at work in the modern world. On the 15th of November 1972, he proclaimed, Evil is not merely a lack of something, but an effective agent, a living spiritual being, perverted and perverting, a terrible reality. So we know that this dark and disturbing spirit really exists, and that he still acts with treacherous cunning. He is the secret enemy that sows errors and misfortunes in human history. The question of the devil and the influence he can exert on individual persons as well as communities is a very important chapter of Catholic doctrine, which is given little attention today, though it should be studied again. It was in the midst of such social and religious unease that The Exorcist opened in the US on Boxing Day of 1973, a year after the Pope's controversial address, and just seven months before the House of Representatives initiated impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon, making him the first American president to ever resign from office. The film bore as little resemblance to the gothic horror chillers of the 60s as Nixon did to JFK. Eschewing the costumed high campery of the traditional hammer romps, The Exorcist presented a credible portrait of the modern urban world ripped apart by an obscene ancient evil. For the first time in a mainstream movie, audiences witnessed the graphic desecration of everything that was considered wholesome and good about the fading American dream. The home, the family, the church, and, most shockingly, the child. This film very much takes part in the deconstruction of the rose-tinted image of America that Roman Polanski continued in 1974 with Chinatown. Even in Rosemary's Baby, the sheen of Americana still remained intact, even if only by a thread. But by the time we arrive at The Exorcist, the dialect of horror cinema has changed in a way that allows the film to expose the rot and decay that had set in at the heart of America. In Chinatown, it was moral and economical. In The Exorcist, it was spiritual. In 1949, a 14-year-old boy from Mount Rainier, Maryland, was supposedly possessed by demonic infestation and had an exorcism performed over him. The events of this possession were meticulously collated and presented in 1993 as the book Possession, written by Thomas B. Allen. Allen's version of these events was largely based on the diaries of Father Raymond J. Bishop, who had assisted Father William S. Bowden throughout the exorcism of this young boy. The events, as described by Alan in Possession, are compelling. It began on January 15, 1949, when the young boy, renamed by Alan as Robbie Mannheim, and his grandmother were spending an evening together at 3210 Bunker Hill Road, Mount Rainier in Maryland. 
Noises of dripping and scratching in the upstairs rooms prompted some snooping around, but there was nothing to be found. Robbie's father declaring that it must have been the sound of rats. Eleven days later, Robbie's auntie Harriet died in St. Louis, which deeply affected Robbie, who was incredibly close with her. She was also someone who was generously described by others as being slightly left of centre. A self-professed medium, Harriet had spent a lot of time with Robbie teaching him how to use a Ouija board and explaining how the souls of the dead could make contact with the living. After Harriet's passing, the noises and disturbances in the Mannheim house began to increase at a rapid pace. Robbie's mattress would shake at night, and his bedroom became infested with scratching and thumping sounds, which, when questioned, seemed to respond to the name of Aunt Harriet. By the time Robbie spent the night at the home of the Mannheim's local Lutheran minister, Reverend Luther Miles Schulz, on Thursday the 17th of February, poltergeist phenomena had become a regular occurrence at Bunker Hill Road. Despite being a staunch sceptic when it came to demonic possession, Schulz witnessed Robbie's bed shaking and the movement of a heavy armchair and the mattress on which Robbie lay. Upon seeing these things, he would tell the Mannheims, you have to see a Catholic priest. The Catholics know about things like this. Sometime between Sunday the 27th of February and Friday the 4th of March, Robbie underwent an abortive exorcism under the control of Father Albert Hughes at the Jesuit-run Georgetown Hospital, during which Robbie attacked Hughes with a piece of broken bedspring, slashing his arm from shoulder to wrist. Things continued to get stranger and stranger. Here's another short excerpt from Mark Kermode's book on The Exorcist. Following instructions apparently scratched on Robbie's body in red letters, reading Lewis, Saturday, and three and a half weeks, the Mannheims went to stay with relatives in St. Louis, where Aunt Harriet had lived and died, who referred them to the Jesuit priests Father Raymond Bishop and Father William Bowden. While Bowden and Bishop investigated the possibility of demonic possession, Robbie's relatives performed makeshift seances, concluding, bizarrely, that Aunt Harriet was indeed infesting Robbie in an attempt to direct his father to a hidden stash of money intended for Harriet's daughter. On Wednesday the 16th of March, under instruction from Archbishop Joseph Ritter, Bowden performed an exorcism at the home of Robbie's aunt and uncle, assisted by Father Bishop and the young Father Walter Halloran. During the ceremony, Robbie spat into the faces of the priests, while welts and stripes appeared on his body, some forming the words hell and go, the letter X, and an image of the devil, in which, according to Bishop, the arms were held above his head and seemed to be webbed, giving the hideous appearance of a bat. Subsequent home exorcisms followed, during which Robbie broke wind, mimed masturbation, and urinated copiously while screaming that his penis was burning. Although Robbie's condition had not improved, Bowden agreed to accompany the boy back to Mount Rainier, where further exorcisms took place, prompting the appearance on the boy's skin of the words hell and spite, and the numbers 4, 8, 10, and 16. These regular brandings continued, now often breaking the surface of the skin and drawing blood, while the boy taunted those around him in a guttural voice. There was filthy talk and movements, records Bishop, of one of Robbie's more pronounced seizures, 
and filthy attacks on those at the bedside concerning masturbation and contraceptives, sexual relations of priests and nuns. They attempted unsuccessfully to admit Robbie to a mental institution in Baltimore before successfully having him placed in the secure mental ward at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. Yet another exorcism was performed, during which the word exit appeared on Robbie's chest with an arrow pointing down to his penis. During the exorcism, Bowden also received a violent blow to the genitals from Robbie. On Easter Sunday, Bishop recorded an increased authority in the quote devil's voice with which Robbie was speaking during his attacks, while other witnesses reported a chilled air in the room, an unbearable stench, and a grotesque distortion of the boy's features. Finally, at around 11pm on Monday the 18th of April, Robbie announced, Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael, and I command you, Satan, and all the other evil spirits, to leave this body in the name of Dominus, immediately, now. At this, Robbie's disturbances abruptly came to an immediate end. These events are compelling, and the records make for fascinating reading. But it is, of course, easy to dismiss these events and the elements of demonic possession as a case of mental illness and hysteria. It's also impossible not to consider the possibility that the sexual elements of the manifestation come from some sort of repressed sexual trauma surrounding Robbie's relationship with his aunt, Harriet. As we know from Bishop's diaries, many of Robbie's outbursts and disturbing ramblings were of a sexual nature, fixating violently on his genitals and on the sexual act. More strikingly still, even in the advanced stages of his disturbance, Robbie tended to manifest symptoms of possession only at night, when he had changed from his day clothes into his pyjamas and gone to bed. This motif particularly stands out in Alan's retelling of the story, as does his account of Robbie's violent reaction to a statue of Christ being stripped of his garments during the Stations of the Cross. Could this not be a case of possession, but rather a manifestation of some guilty trauma involving nakedness? Indeed, when Archbishop Ritter, who personally authorised the exorcisms, later appointed a Jesuit examiner to review the case, the official conclusion was that Robbie was not afflicted by demons, but suffered from, quote, a psychosomatic disorder with some kinesis action. Bowden felt differently, however, telling William Peter Blatty many years later, I can assure you of one thing, the case in which I was involved was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then, and have no doubt about it now. Blatty would later tell Kermode of his conviction that the Mount Rainier case had been a genuine instance of demonic possession. Yes, yes, absolutely, and it's not a matter of this being one case among many others that I know of. Had I not come across this case, I don't think I would have written The Exorcist. My original intention for The Exorcist was not as a novel. I was going to write a case study of an authentic case of demonic possession. That, for me, was the excitement of the whole enterprise and I was in touch with the exorcist involved, but he simply couldn't get permission from the Archbishop because of the family. Which brings us to the point at which writer William Peter Blatty enters this compelling story. Born in 1928 in New York, Blatty was the youngest of five children to Lebanese migrant parents. 
He earned a Master's in English Literature from the George Washington University in 1954 and then enlisted in the United States Air Force for a short time before dropping out and joining the United States Information Agency, working as an editor based in Beirut, Lebanon. During this time, he began submitting writing to magazines, and his talent began to emerge in a public forum. By the time the 1960s came along, he had built up a formidable reputation as a comedy writer, with films like the Inspector Clouseau film A Shot in the Dark, What Did You Do in the War, Daddy, and Promise Her Anything. Despite his success, he was beginning to become frustrated by how limited that success had made his options for future projects. While he loved comedy and was obviously talented at it, he was looking for a more serious project to get his teeth into, and the right opportunity to do so. When later reflecting on this decision, he would say, a very promising career as a humorist was obliterated at a single stroke. It was during his time at George Washington University that he came across an article in the Washington Post that outlined the basic case details of the Mount Rainier exorcism. Blatty later said that this article made a huge impression on him, seeing in it tangible evidence of transcendence. If there were demons, there were angels, and probably a god and a life everlasting. He was encouraged by his tutors to present a paper on exorcism, and became enraptured by the idea of a factual, in-depth account of the case that could serve as an uplifting document, reassuring the sceptical of the absolute existence of God. As Blatty later told Peter Travers and Stephanie Reif for their book, The Story Behind the Exorcist, Like so many Catholics and people of belief, I thought it would be nice to put my fingers through the holes in Christ's hands or have Christ appear on the Empire State Building to give me a private revelation. None of us have seen Lazarus or the Resurrection. So, if all the reports of the paranormal phenomena in the case were true, it would seem to me, although not proof of everything that I had been taught, at least an absolutely riveting corroboration. Blatty began approaching figures in the Mount Rainier case. He found Father Bowden after a friend in Los Angeles had supplied him with the exorcist's name and address. Throughout their initial interactions, Blatty would try to convince Father Bowden of his desire to write an account of the case, which could, quote, do more for the church and Christianity than 80 novels ever could. Bowden's reply was a fascinating, if complex, one. My own thoughts were that much good might have come if the case was reported and people had come to realise that the presence and activity of the devil is something very real, and possibly never more real than at the present time. Staggeringly, though, his clerical superiors did not want the case publicised and had instructed him to keep it as such, on the ground that it would be most embarrassing and possibly painfully disturbing to the young man should he be in any way connected with a book detailing events that took place in his life some years ago. Since a case of possession is a very rare occurrence, he would certainly connect his own experience with any such account. It was as a result of this that Blatty began working, undaunted, on a fictionalised tale inspired by the 1949 case that was, crucially, not linked to it in any way. The result was The Exorcist. Among a large number of differences between Blatty's tale and the case that inspired it was the inclusion of long sections dedicated to young Reagan McNeil, female as opposed to the male Robbie Mannheim, being subjected to medical testing. In his novel, Regan experiences x-rays, an EEG, and a lumbar tap, followed by psychiatric analysis and a period of observation at the Barringer Clinic in Dayton. 
The film would add to this the arteriogram examination, which caused so many viewers to faint when the movie opened. But we'll get to that later in the show. The only major links between The Exorcist and the Mannheim case were, in the end, the use of a Ouija board, the inexplicable occurrence of rapping or scratching sounds, uncontrollable rages and associated verbal and physical profanities, an apparent increase in physical strength during such rages, displays of telekinetic and possibly telepathic powers, the apparent use of language unknown to the host, the ability to sing with peculiarly accurate pitch, a feature of the novel not present in the film, and to distort the voice, and the manifestation of bodily phenomena, including unexplained brandings, scarring, and scratching, sometimes in the form of writing. Ultimately, though, it would appear that the most important link between the Mannheim case and Blatty's fictional tale is that both Robbie Mannheim and Regan McNeil are adolescents living in modern urban surroundings whose conditions evoke a cure more commonly associated with the Middle Ages than the sanitised, educated and sophisticated 20th century. When Blatty showed a completed draft of the novel to his neighbour, Shirley MacLaine, in the summer of 1970, she could straight away tell that the character of Chris McNeil was based on her. McLean said to Mark Kermode in 1997, Bill and I had had so many talks about heaven and hell, and I kept saying, look, you're a Lebanese Catholic, what else do you expect to believe? That's just who you are. I am not that. I agree with Gandhi, strangely enough, that the only devils we really have are the ones rattling around in our own hearts. I don't believe the devil is out there. I think the potential for doing mean and evil things is what's in there. Recognising both the quality of the work and her place in the story, McLean expressed interest in shooting a film adaptation that November. But when a laughably low offer was made by investors for that project, McLean went on instead to star in the rival film The Possession of Joel Delaney. At this time, publishers at Bantam had put out the novel for hardcover publication bids, securing a respectable offer from Harper and Rowe, who were asking for changes to be made to the manuscript. Their requests included the removal of some scenes, as well as a less obvious conclusion. Another excerpt from Mark Kermode's book. While negotiations with Harper were in progress, Paul Monash, producer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, offered Blatty $400,000 for a six-month option on the book, which he promptly sold to Warner Brothers for a reported $641,000. However, in an alleged episode of Cloak and Dagger zaniness, Blatty got wind that Monash was demanding unauthorized changes to his property and managed to obtain confidential memos from Monash's office, which constituted proof of someone, quote, screwing the author. Faced with this evidence, Warner Brothers had no choice but to drop Monash, with somewhere between 5 and 9% of the film's profit, leaving Blatty as the sole producer. Blatty now wrote a first draft screenplay, which is published in On the Exorcist, which ran to around 225 pages despite losing the Iraq prologue. And negotiations now began with Warner to find a list of directors. The list of names included Stanley Kubrick, who was ruled out because he also insisted on producing, Arthur Penn, who was busy teaching at Yale, and Mike Nichols, who didn't want to shoot a film so dependent on a child's performance. Despite this list of high-profile directors being approached, Blatty's number one preference from the very beginning was William Friedkin. Friedkin had impressed Blatty in the late 60s by badmouthing to his face his script for Gun, 
likely the only reason that Friedkin didn't end up landing that directing job. Warner Brothers initially refused to consider Friedkin, but were persuaded to think again by two different events. Blatty's threat of legal action, and the opening of The French Connection, for which Friedkin won the Academy Award for Best Director. Friedkin is an American filmmaker whose work is closely associated with the so-called new wave of American filmmaking in the 1970s, but it's his work in the 1960s in the lane of documentary filmmaking that makes this pairing of narrative practitioners so compelling. To my mind, it's the meeting of these two brains that takes the novel of The Exorcist and turns it into one of the most enduring and thematically rich theological pieces in the history of cinema. While Blatty was a devout man of faith, Friedkin shared none of these connections to the thematic material of the source. All he wanted to do was make a great film, and as was customary for him coming out of a background in documentary, that involved capturing narrative as flat and unstylized as possible, as close to capturing the essence of real life as it was possible to get without actually making a documentary. Friedkin was eventually hired, and in customary fashion, promptly criticised Bloody's beloved first draft screenplay. His objections to Blatty's undeniably tricksy script were so strong that he simply refused to work from it, instead merely circling scenes and dialogue from a battered copy of the novel. As a result of these criticisms, Blatty produced a second draft of the script. Finally, in August of 1972, Friedkin and Blatty started shooting The Exorcist from a script which would ultimately win the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. But Blatty retained the sneaking suspicion that his draft had been a superior work and that somehow he'd been talked out of making something that he was truly proud of. The troubled production of The Exorcist has been detailed to death on numerous occasions, but a number of key things stand out. The troubled production of The Exorcist has been detailed to death on numerous occasions, but a number of key things stand out when you look at the making of this film with the blessing of hindsight. The first is the number of deaths that occurred amongst cast and crew in and around the production of The Exorcist. First of all, the set of the McNeil house burned down in a freak accident when a bird flew into the circuit box, while Regan's room remained miraculously unburnt. Following this fire, nine people associated with the film would eventually die while the film was still being shot. Jack McGarren, the actor who portrays Burke Dennings in the film, died from complications due to influenza. Vasiliki Maliros, who played Father Damien Karras' mother, also passed away from natural causes while the film was still in production. Meanwhile, Linda Blair, who plays Regan, and actor Max von Sydow, lost family members before shooting Wrapped. Shortly after its release, a 16th century church across the road from where the movie premiered was struck by lightning, causing a cross to fall to the ground. These events led many to believe that the film itself is cursed, one of many films to have elicited this response from curious observers. More tangible, perhaps, are the issues that the cast and crew quickly ran into whilst filming The Exorcist, many of which stem directly from director William Friedkin. Friedkin was notorious for being a bit of a loose cannon on set, being willing to do whatever it takes to get what he needed out of his performance, crossing all sorts of boundaries of workplace safety and ethical responsibilities for his cast and crew along the way. The set of Regan's bedroom was refrigerated for the exorcism scenes to below zero degrees Celsius to create the right environment for steam to come out of the performers' mouths. He was also known to keep a firearm on his person for a lot of the time spent on set, 
letting off rounds at irregular intervals. He fired people from the set without warning and had a temper that could clear the room. Production took twice as long as it was scheduled for and cost over three times the initial budget that Warner Brothers had committed to, further fueling the fire for conspiracy theorists to claim that the film was cursed. One element that contributes to his style of filmmaking is his commitment to realism, something that manifested in ways that his performers were not always prepared for, much less willing to put up with. All of that work in that room was, was excruciating to get. Uh, because it was all done mechanically. I said to Billy, if I was a devil, I'd get up and, and grab her, and I would thrash her. I would let her know. He said, go ahead and do it. It's a rigging that Marcel Vocateer came up with that was a mold of my back, and it was a, like a hard metal. And then they had like a, a brace around my stomach, and then it was laced up on the sides. I had her completely strapped in, and I could, I had her. It was actually manually pumped by some big men <laughs> on the other side of the wall. I could throw her up and back, and I had her. And the lacing came loose while I was being thrown, and so as I went forward, the piece was coming back. So it was a constant. And I, the dialogue was, please make it stop, make it stop, it hurts, it burns, whatever. She started screaming. I didn't know what to do. And so I'm just yelling, it hurts really, really. And th somebody thought I yelled, Billy. And I actually never broke character. She wanted out. She wanted really out. She was really getting thrashed. That's the footage I use in the movie where I'm crying my eyes out because they are brutally damaging my back. I had a rig around my midriff with a wire coming out the back, and the stuntman was pulling me. So we took her back the first time, and she, it was a good shot. And Billy said, um, we're going to do it again. I said, Billy, he's pulling me too hard. I can get hurt. And Billy said, well, it has to look real. I said, I understand, but I'm telling you, I could get hurt. And the stuntman was standing there listening to this, and Billy said to him, okay, don't pull her so hard. But as I turned away, I felt them exchange a look. And he said, give it to her this time. <laughs> and I said, really? And he says, give it to her. And this is Ellen Burstyn, right? She's a nice lady. And so I said, okay. So when I hauled off, she came completely off her feet. You see me hit and you see me reach for my back. I screamed in horrendous pain. Billy motioned to Owen to tilt the camera down on me. And I saw it and I was so furious and said, turn the effing camera off because I couldn't stand that he was willing to just get a quick shot of it before they called the ambulance, you know. Ellen didn't like it too well and she went to see her chiropractor and the um, chiropractor said, you're all right. Just a couple of days you'll get over the soreness. But that's show business, I guess. It was way beyond what 
uh, anyone needs to do to make a movie. Well, it was a very difficult film. Um, Billy was reaching for the limit. He was committed to it, and he was obsessed by it himself. And uh, and that obsession was contagious. He knew what to do with this film from the minute that he read the book. And it was his vision, so all of us just participated by doing what he wanted. Billy didn't kid around. When he said he liked something, they said he really liked it, you see. He never flattered. And if you didn't do things the way he liked, he'd let you know about it in no uncertain terms. Billy can be totally irascible. Billy has reduced me to tears on more than one occasion on, on the set. And you never knew when he was going to explode or not explode. So there was always a tension on the set. Oh, come on, shut up in there! And yet I keep coming back, you know? I, I keep coming back for more because I have the greatest respect for him as a filmmaker. And he knew how to make each one of us work. And that in itself was, was very interesting because I got to watch everything from the bed, right? I'm looking around and watching how he was with Jason, how he was with Max, how he was with Ellen, how he was with Kitty. I watched. I saw a lot. <laughs> but he also liked to, to stimulate the actors. That was what his feeling was. So he would sometimes shoot off a gun or something when he wanted someone to look startled. And that's really what pissed me off. And I told him, I said, never do that again. You know, I'm an actor. I don't need all these artificial stimulants. He had this absolute silence in the room while I'm listening to the tape. I'm trying to decipher what it was. And the phone ring. And he shot a shotgun. He this close to my head. I said, you son of a bitch. How dare you do that? What if you went a little bit to the right? <laughs> and freaking says, it's all right, we got Jack Nicholson in the wings. <laughs> Billy would fire guns all the time. Well, the actors got used to this. And they'd come in the morning, and, and I had a good relationship with them. And uh, like Max would walk in and say, good morning, Owen. Uh, where are the guns this morning? I said, well, there's a 45 behind that wall and a shotgun behind that one. Um, he said, thank you very much. He had a total freedom, I think. And, uh, and of course, he behaved like a man with total freedom and total power. So, no, I enjoyed very much working with him. Although, although it was, he used maybe uh, sometimes methods that I was not used to. My dear friend Billy Friedkin is a maniac. <laughs> And I love him, uh, but he's a maniac. Billy would do anything to motivate an actor. After Jason Miller dies, when Father Bill goes in to give him the last rites, we did 13 takes, 15 takes, 17 takes, I'm not quite sure. Do you want to make a confession? Bill Friedkin wanted Father Dyer to react in some emotional way. This is his best friend lying there in a pool of blood. And Father Bill could never get it right. So Billy comes over to me and says, Bill, you're just doing this by the numbers. He was a non-actor. He couldn't, he couldn't emote. And I said, Billy, I have just given my best friend the last rites 15 times in one night, and it's now 2.30 in the morning. Friedkin and I had a little signal that we'd use to silently roll the camera and sound. And he asked me at this time to, to do just that. And he said, I understand. So do you trust me? Well, you always trust somebody unless they ask you. And Billy went in and slapped him across the face. He 
belted me right across the chops and backed off. And I went in the scene, and if you look at that carefully, when I'm given less right, my hand's going like that. And I wasn't making my hand go like that. That was sheer nerve juice and all I had left. He hurt himself He was tough, but it was very stimulating. Uh, he drove me to some of the best work that I'd ever that I'd done up to that time. We spoke about something similar all the way back in episode one of this show when we looked at Stanley Kubrick and The Shining. Whenever I hear stories like this, I cannot help but wonder just how much trouble the William Friedkin equivalent would be in, and rightly so, if anything like this happened on a contemporary film set. You could only imagine the headlines that we would be reading if someone like Robert Eggers caused Anya Taylor-Joy serious back injury for the sake of getting the right shot on The Northman. It speaks to how much the industry has changed over the years, but also to my feeling that film directors shouldn't be treated with any more respect and admiration than anyone else who is excellent at their craft, and that they absolutely need to be held to the same moral and ethical standards as everyone else, no matter how excellent their films are. It's widely known just how much The Exorcist affected viewers when it finally made its way into cinemas. Not only was it the most financially successful R-rated film in America until the 2017 reboot of It, although not adjusted for inflation, but there were also reports of people throwing up, passing out, and even miscarrying as a result of seeing the film, whose reputation quickly grew into that of the scariest film of all time. But why did The Exorcist have such an impact? What was in the water at the time? Why was the cultural scene so perfectly set for the exorcist to scare the hell out of audiences around the world? We alluded to this earlier in the show, but a huge part of the context in which the exorcist was allowed to be so successful is the Vietnam War. Violence and bloodshed was being broadcast into people's homes, and all of a sudden, horror and violence was a thing very much of this world, a tangible force that was to be reckoned with physically and amongst ourselves, our peers, and our leaders. The Exorcist challenged that contemporary idea of the nature of evil by reaffirming Bloody's conviction of the spiritual and supernatural realms of the world still being of significance and having great influence on the modern world. So while it is possibly as simple as that it was the scariest thing that people had seen in the cinemas, it also bears mentioning that it was scary in a way that had not yet been taken to the multiplexes and the mainstream conversation around cinema. Just the other night, this guy came out and I looked out the door and he was lying on the floor. He's really big. He wouldn't have expected. I know. All these big guys, they, they come out and they look like they're ghosts or something. And they ask for Somalian salts and everything. It's not the kind of people you'd expect to faint. Yeah. It didn't scare me. I just, I don't know what happened. I just fainted. It was frightening. My experience with this movie has been incredible, especially with people fainting. Uh, halfway through the movie, it starts. The movie starts getting quite uh, uh, violent, and uh, people get quite unusual reactions. And we have a lot of people throwing up and a lot of people shuddering. But the thing that really surprises me is people faint. I mean, I've never in my life known a movie where people would faint. I mean, it's hard to make people faint. 
The crowds were so intense at all the theaters that they became a police concern. Uniformed guards were hired in all instances to keep thoroughfares clear and prevent violation of the lines. Uh, it's, it's something I never saw in my whole entire life. This is something different. And I went to a, a lot of movies, but I never seen nothing like this in myself. Just turn his head around. <laughs> 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 it's probably the grossest thing I've ever seen. Oh, it's weird. She turned her head around. <laughs> she turned her head around. That bad. Carl was so scared the bed was shaking and like her back. And then when her voice changed, my God, I've never seen anything like it. Did you see the part where she turns her head around? Not, not yet. I'm not gonna see it either. It's gross. What is that? Yeah. It's Man, gross. that is one of the most grossest movies uh, in the world. It is. I ain't never took my coat over <laughs> my face like that. Seriously, man. It really was. It was Seriously. It was a good movie, but it was really bad. I tell everybody go see it. It was a cultural phenomenon and was critically revered as well as enjoying massive commercial success. But as is often the case with films that tackle themes of faith and religion, there was no shortage of controversy surrounding the film in this sphere of conversation. A number of scenes in particular provoked strong responses from religious organisations, including the crucifix scene, supposed subliminal demonic imagery, and the desecration of religious iconography. The long-standing suggestion that The Exorcist is littered with subliminal demonic imagery has, perhaps more than any other aspect of the movie, provoked angry claims that it is somehow evil, dangerous, or incendiary. Most notoriously, evangelist Billy Graham declared that there was an evil embodied in the very celluloid of the film, calling the film spiritual pornography, while fundamentalist author Hal Lindsey described it as setting the stage for the future attack of Satan. On a rather more down-to-earth note, media critic Wilson Brian Key devoted an entire chapter of his 1976 work Media Sexploitation to attempting to nail down the repertoire of visual and auditory subliminal innovations which made The Exorcist threatening or even dangerous for a small minority of viewers. Here's Mark Kermode again. Like so many contemporary criticisms of The Exorcist, Key's charges of subliminal foul play are, for the most part, either wildly exaggerated or totally incorrect. No matter how intensely one scrutinises a freeze-framed part of the film, it's impossible to confirm, as Key suggests, that, quote, as Merrin's breath condensed, a ghostly face appeared momentarily in the cloud, which was consciously invisible to the audience. One area where Key gets closer to the truth is in his assertion that Karras' anguished dream of his dead mother contains a subliminal shot in which, quote, the face of Father Karras momentarily appeared as a large, full-screen death mask apparition, the skin greasy white, the mouth a blood-red gash, the face surrounded by a white cowl or shroud. Key is right in that the dream sequence, perhaps one of the most densely packed passages in the film, does contain a subliminal shot of a ghastly, leering face which flashes past the screen amid an extraordinary montage of images and jumbled icons. But the face isn't wrapped in a white cowl or a shroud, and it isn't the face of Father Karras, as Friedkin explained in 1991. Those frames are from a makeup test that didn't work, which we did with Linda Blair's double, Eileen Dites. The makeup was intended for use on Linda Blair. I rejected it, 
as having no organic validity as to what was happening with the girl in the film. It was just makeup. But it seemed to me that it had a power if used briefly like that, so I took those frames that were not meant to be in the original production and cut them in experimentally. It seemed to work. Incidentally, while the makeup of the demonic face in The Exorcist has had an influence on countless horror films since, just as it was influenced by other ghastly supernatural figures in cinema before it, I picked up on my most recent rewatch that it seems to reappear in the way that Laura Palmer's face distorts in one of the earlier scenes of Twin Peaks' Fire Walk With Me, a film that we looked at just a few weeks ago on the podcast. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops' Office for Film and Broadcasting, through their publication Catholic Film Newsletter, declared the film for adults only and gave it a generally negative review that faulted the film for suggesting that exorcisms were common and possibly encouraging belief in the occult and Satanism. Eugene Kennedy, a priest and psychologist, described the film's view of the battle of good and evil as, quote, immature. Being a Christian and a mature person means coming to terms with our own capacity for evil, not projecting it on an outside force that possesses us. Less publicised, however, is the way in which the film was actually affirmed by religious organisations as a valuable piece of theological fiction. Many religious organisations have praised the film for the way that it takes spiritual subject matter and themes of faith and doubt seriously, distributing them into the wider popular culture and popular conversation. I know that in my own faith communities, it's considered one of the great theological works in cinema, and some of the most fulfilling and challenging conversations I've had with other people of faith have been about the material covered in The Exorcist. What is the nature of evil? Is it an external force in direct conflict with God? Is it manifest through our own shortcomings and tendencies towards evil? How do we, as people of faith, respond to the presence of evil in our world? Those are not questions that get raised by spiritual pornography. They are questions that are raised by a text that was written by a deeply religious man struggling with his own faith. Regardless of how you feel about the validity and theological truth to be found in claims of demonic possession, the exorcist takes its subject matter seriously and encourages the viewer to do so as well. The Exorcist includes some of the very best screen performances you could ever hope to see on the big screen. Jason Miller is electric as the young Catholic priest, Father Karras, struggling with losing his faith and his mother. You son of a bitch! Come into me! God damn you! The late Max von Sydow as Father Merrin is a late entry into the film after his initial appearance in the Iraq prologue and commands the screen with his calm and calculated poise right up until the very end. Stick your cock up her ass, you motherfucking worthless cocksucker! Be silent! Oh! Oh, 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 oh. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. Save me, O God, by thy name. By thy might defend my cause. Proud men have risen up against me. Men of violence seek my life. But God is my helper. The Lord sustains my life. In every need he has delivered me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Save your servant. Who places her trust in thee, my God. Be unto her, O Lord, a fortified tower. In the face of the enemy. Let the enemy have no power over her. And the sound of iniquity be powerless to harm her. Your mother sucks cocks and hell, Paris, you faithless slime. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us pray. Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who once and for all consigned that fallen tyrant to the flames of hell, who sent your only begotten Son into the world to crush that roaring lion, hasten to our call for help and snatch from ruination and from the clutches of the noonday devil this human being made in your image and likeness. Strike terror, Lord, into the beast, now laying waste your image. Let your mighty hand cast him out of your servant, Reagan Therese McNeil, so he may no longer hold captive this prison, who he pleased you to make in your image, and to redeem through your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. O Lord, hear my prayer. The Exorcist also contains what is probably my very favourite Ellen Burstyn performance. It's a performance of such great importance to the film that it could have the ability to completely derail the film were it to miss the mark. But Burstyn generates such empathy and terror from the audience in just how authentic and naked her performance feels. In fact, it doesn't feel like a performance at all, which is one of the great compliments that an actor can receive. In keeping with the film's realism, it feels like Chris McNeil was simply captured on camera for documentary purposes, such as the total immersion Burstyn commits to in her performances. Thank you. Look, I'm only against the possibility of doing your daughter more harm than good. Nothing you can do could make it any worse. I can't do it. I need evidence that the church would accept his signs of possession. Like what? Like her speaking in a language she's never known or studied. What else? I don't know. I'd have to look it up. I thought you were supposed to be an expert. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. Now, if you've seen as many psychotics as I have, you'd realize that's the same thing as saying you're Napoleon Bonaparte. You ask me what I think is best for your daughter. Six months under observation in the best hospital you can find. You show me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice, everything. And I'd know it wasn't Reagan. I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. 
Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! And of course, Linda Blair. Both Denise Nickerson, the actor who portrayed Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and Jamie Lee Curtis were approached for the role of Regan McNeil. But both of the young actors' families declined the offer on their behalf on account of the sheer darkness and disturbing material in the film. Linda Blair impressed Friedkin greatly, and after filming, Friedkin recalled, She is the most totally pulled-together, stable, mature young person I've ever met. The whole thing was a game to her. Of the 500 actresses that I saw audition, there wasn't one other that I would have considered. Reagan, why are you reading that stuff? Because I like that. It's not even a good picture. It looks so mature. You wouldn't talk. Well, I didn't know they were taking... Didn't have my makeup man there. Didn't take an eyelash off your face. No, I didn't get it. Mm. What are we going to do on your birthday? Isn't it nice? It's on Sunday this year. Mm, No work. What can we do? I don't know. Well, what would you like to do? Got any ideas? Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Let me think. Let me think. What can we do? Hey, you know, we never finished seeing all the sights in Washington. We didn't get to Lee Mansion and lots of stuff. Should we do that? Go sightseeing? Hmm? It's a nice day. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And tomorrow night, I'll take you to a movie. Okay? Oh, I love you. Oh, I love you, Rex. Mm. Mm. <laughs> we have a good day, yeah? You can bring Mr. Dennings if you like. Mr. Dennings? Well, you know, it's okay. Well, thank you very much, but why on earth would I want to bring Burke on your birthday? You hmm? like him. Yeah, I like him. Don't you like him? Hey, what's going on? What is this? Huh? You're going to marry him, aren't you? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me, Mary Burke Dennings? Don't be silly. Of course not. Where'd you ever get an idea like that? But you like him. Of course I like him. I like pizzas, too, but I'm not going to marry one. Mm. You don't like him like Daddy? Reagan, I love you, Daddy. I'll always love you, Daddy, honey. Okay? Brooke just comes around here a lot, because... Well, he's lonely. Don't got nothing to do. No, I heard differently. Oh, you did. What did you hear? Huh? I don't know. Oh, come I on. I just thought. Well, you didn't think so, but... How do you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> Burke and I are just friends. Okay? Really? Okay. You ready for sleep? One major reason that contributes to this film holding up as well as it does today is that the film doesn't engage in material of spirituality and faith in a way that will only resonate with those who are of the Christian faith. Chris, Regan's mother, is a staunch atheist, acting almost as an audience surrogate in a lot of cases. Her scepticism is emblematic of the audience's scepticism. Just like us, Chris is determined to find a medical or psychological explanation for Regan's behaviour, but despite her best efforts, there is nothing that she can do. Outside of any spiritual or demonic external forces, the simple idea of a loved one being afflicted by something that you don't understand and therefore are unable to properly diagnose and address is intensely scary. 
The more and more Chris searches for an answer, the clearer her discovery that there is absolutely nothing that she can do to help her daughter. You do not have to be a person of faith to find that a compelling and deeply upsetting idea. A scene from the book that was shot and left out of the original version of the film, later to be reintroduced in the extended cut, is that of Father Karras and Father Merrin sitting together on the staircase outside of Regan's room after a particularly harrowing and exhausting period of exorcism. Why this girl makes no sense. I... I think... The point is to make us despair. To see ourselves as animal and ugly. To reject the possibility that God could love us. Blatty was upset by this scene's removal from the original cut of the film. And in this particular case, I think that he's correct. If any one particular scene sums up the thesis statement of the film, it's this conversation. The nature of evil is not just its external attempts at influencing the world, but also the way in which it breaks down and demoralizes good people. If Reagan's possession is indeed that of an external sentient force, the purpose of her possession is surely not simply to attack Reagan's body and soul. It's to eliminate the possibility of God from the minds of those around her, to convince them that there could not be a God in a world in which the perversion and desecration of something so pure as a young child could be permitted. It is the great theological triumph of the film, then, that it presents faith and religion as a very real and very tangible, if also slightly ephemeral, solution to this problem of evil. Another reason for this film standing the test of time, in my opinion, is the practical effects that the filmmakers implement in creating some of the more memorable scare moments. The infamous vomit moment, in which a clearly possessed Reagan throws up thick, lumpy green vomit all over Jason Miller's father Karras. This shot only required one take, because while the split piece soup was set up to hit Jason Miller in the chest, the contraption malfunctioned, spraying him in the face instead, eliciting a genuine reaction of disgust and anger. Possibly yet another example of Friedkin intentionally messing with his cast, the special effect is so successfully gross and disturbing that it has stood the test of time. The scene in which Reagan is causing all manner of objects to fly around her room was achieved practically too, something that holds up incredibly well, especially when put in direct contrast to a similar moment in Toby Hooper's Poltergeist that was achieved entirely with opticals. The makeup and effects used to transform Linda Blair into the demon-possessed girl are nothing short of iconic, even if it does contribute to one thing that causes modern audiences to check out of the film. As soon as Karis enters Reagan's bedroom, it's obvious that she's possessed. The infamous arteriogram examination is one special effect that has seemed to have had as much of a lasting impact on viewers as any of the special effects associated with the possession and demonic transformation of Reagan. 
As part of the intensive search for a medical explanation of Reagan's behaviour, she is subjected to an arteriogram, a needle being inserted into her neck, followed by an upsettingly strong spurt of blood. When the film opened, this was one of the main causes of audience members passing out. Not because of anything supernatural or demonic, but purely out of a cold and cruelly observational depiction of the pursuit of a medical explanation impinging on innocence and childhood. Blatty himself never watched the scene when he viewed the film, saying, I've learnt over the years that it's the most terrifying scene in the film. British comedian Graham Garden, who has a medical degree, agreed that the scene was genuinely disturbing in his review for The New Scientist. He called it, quote, the really irresponsible feature of this film. Critic John Kenneth Muir wrote about this scene in the 1970s as well. Quote, the camera pointedly does not express the horror of Reagan's experience with modern medicine. It only records it, allowing the audience to take away from it what it will. In some ways, the hospital interlude is the most terrifying scene in the film because it looks, sounds, and feels totally real. For a time, it is medicine that possesses Reagan, not the devil. So realistic was this scene as a depiction of medical science in the 1970s that Friedkin even claims on the commentary track for the 2012 DVD release of the extended cut that the scene was used as a training film for radiologists for years after the film's release. And there is, of course the spider walk scene. The spider walk scene in which Reagan crawls backwards down the staircase in front of her terrified mother, blood dripping from her mouth, was never actually in the original cut of the film, despite many people misremembering its appearance. At the time of production, they didn't have the means by which to remove the wires from the scene that were holding up Reagan, so it wasn't used. There were other key scenes removed from the original cut too, which Blatty felt blindsided and disheartened by. But in 2000, Blatty approached Friedkin with the idea of having a look at the possibility of an extended cut of the film. The original cut of The Exorcist, Bill Blatty and I disagreed about. I cut a number of scenes out, more than 12 minutes worth, from the original version of the film for two reasons. One, I showed it to a man who was an executive at Warner Brothers then called John Kelly. He was sort of head of production. And I showed the work print of the film to him, and he had what I thought were some very good suggestions. A couple of scenes, he said, I don't think you need that. I think that's overstatement. When he first said this to me, I respected John Kelly, but I thought, well, who the hell is he? I mean, I've lived with this film now for well over a year. I won an Academy Award. What is he telling me how to change my film? But I went home after this meeting and I started to think about everything that he had said. And I went into the cutting room the next day and I tried all of the changes and cuts that he suggested and I thought it was a better film. And so I went out with it that way. And for years, Blatty was angry about that. And for a long time, he didn't even speak to me. But whenever he did speak to me, he would say, Billy, you've cut the heart and soul out of the movie. And I would say, Bill, you're a sore winner. The movie's out there. It's a success. The success keeps growing. It's the gift that keeps on giving, as far as you're concerned. And you're telling me that I was wrong? And then many years went by from the year 1974, actually, when the film came out, and the year 2000. And Blatty and I had resumed our very close friendship, and he called me one day, 
And he said, Bill, would you consider looking at the footage that you cut? I'll look at it with you. We'll look at it on an editing machine at Warner Brothers where they have it stored. And will you just look at it and see if you could restore it and put it into a new version of the film? And I did this as a favor to Bill because I, I love Blatty and I respect him. And he gave me the best piece of material I've ever received. And I said, okay, and we went into Warner Brothers. I looked at all these cut scenes. I looked at the shot of the girl walking backwards down the stairs, which we couldn't use at the time because the cable showed, because it was so bright. When we did that spider sequence originally, it was so tricky. You had to have a pretty well-coordinated person to do that. And of course, putting the person on wires helped because you couldn't do it without the wires. It didn't make the movie because of the wires. And so in the 2000 release, they were easily able to take those wires out with CGI. And so Billy decided to use it in the re-release. set was a speech between Max von Sydow and Jason Miller on the staircase between bouts of the ritual. And the speech was, why this girl? What is, the, what is the sense of the point of that? And to paraphrase Marin's answer, it was, the girl is not the target. The target is you, me, every person in this household and the point is to make us despair to make us feel that humanity is ultimately vile ugly bestial putrescent so much so that if there were a god he couldn't possibly love us and to me that speech was so important because on a practical level it would permit a member of the audience to not hate himself for enjoying some of the more horrific moments. It would explain things like uh, the green vomit spewing, everything, all the horrific stuff. I think the point is to make us despair. That was the first scene that I cut out of the movie on my own originally, because I felt that that statement of what it's all about was inherent in the whole film. Bill always felt that it needed to be stated. And I said, Bill, I can't include it because the whole movie is saying that. To reject the possibility that God could love us. I really put it back for him because I feel and felt that I owe him a lot. He wrote this thing, he created it, gave it to me. And as I got older, I become somewhat less arrogant and I felt that he should have the version of the film come out that he wanted. This extended cut of the film, released in 2000 as the version you've never seen, runs a full 10 minutes longer than the original theatrical cut. Whichever version you prefer, I think the fact that there are two versions of the film that are arguably just as great as each other just serves to highlight the importance of that relationship between Blatty and Friedkin. 
The only way that this film gets made to such a high standard and with such a commitment to realism and theological truth is when it comes out of this creative nucleus. Deep faith and theological conviction portrayed on screen through the lens of brutal minimalism and documentary-style realism, removing any sense of cinematic artifice or stylization. When you think about possession films of the 21st century, films like The Conjuring or Insidious immediately spring to mind. And while I have nothing against these films, I think they're perfectly fine for what they're trying to do. They fall into a style of hyper-stylized horror filmmaking that removes any sense of genuine dread or realism. Put it this way, when you walk into the Perrin household in The Conjuring, you immediately know that there's something spooky going on. Before you walk into the house, even. The lighting is creepy, the atmosphere is immediately cranked, the camera angles and movements suggest supernatural influence from the very start. But in real life, nobody sets the dimmers in their house to horror movie mode. In The Exorcist, it truly is a slice of everyday modern suburbia, a well-lit house on a regular street in Georgetown, no Dutch angles dollying through slamming doors, no art direction in the house with the intent of reminding you that this is meant to be a horror film. Without the central conflict and creative friction between Blatty and Friedkin, The Exorcist doesn't crystallise in the minimalist, realist form that it comes to popularise in cinema. One final element of the film that I want to draw your attention to is the sound. For a massively commercially successful horror film, it's surprisingly experimental in places, and the sound composition in the film is a perfect example of this. Some of the most memorable sound work done on the film was done by Gonzalo Gavira, a sound technician from Mexico who worked on over 60 films in his native country. Notably, his works include The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and Towering Inferno, but it was his work on Alejandro Jodorowsky's 1970 film El Topo that caught the attention of William Friedkin. Not speaking any English, he came to work on the film using everything from dried-out leather wallets to recordings of wild animals to craft the hellish soundscape of the film. Key to the sound of the film is also the voice work done for Regan's demonic voice, provided by Mercedes McCambridge. What an excellent day for an exorcism. It wasn't hard for me to imagine the rage. See, if, it, if, if it's this close in me right here, I'm only a human being. It's that close in everybody. Everybody can from this second forward. That isn't hard. She said I should swallow raw eggs, I should smoke cigarettes constantly, and you got to give me some booze, which is going to make me nuts, and I'm getting off the wagon to do this. So I want my priest around to counsel me. You utilize everything. Don't analyze, utilize. And, and I utilized the, 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 the thickness, all of that stuff, for, for the, the voice of Lucifer. Uh, <coughs> I, I don't have any now. This is clear. But when it wasn't, I could use all of that garbage down there. The most curious things would happen in her throat. Double and triple sounds would emerge at once. Wheezing sounds, very much akin to what you could imagine a person inhabited by various demons would sound like. I don't think they had to do this, but they did. They tore up a sheet and put me in restraints. 
was around my neck and my arms behind the chair and my knees and my feet so that I would feel like Linda Blair, whom I've never met, uh, while she was carrying on in the bed, that, that I would be doing the same thing physically. Jesus Christ, God the Lord of all creation. Basically, she performed it under great duress, and I was, like, stunned at what she put herself and allowed me to put her through in order to accomplish this. I used to be scared of ghost stories when I was growing up, but most of it was phony. I wasn't really afraid, but I enjoyed the drama of being afraid, and I think a lot of people reacted that way to The Exorcist, too. I really do. Oh, my God, it was so terrible. No, it wasn't. Finish your popcorn. Also vital to the auditory landscape of The Exorcist is the iconic Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. The history of this piece of music is fascinating and makes for a compelling case study into artistry and the pursuit of perfection, so I highly recommend doing some further reading on this piece of music if you're interested. But while this piece of music is no doubt significant on its own, when it's paired with this film, it takes on legendary status, becoming synonymous with the film and going on to be used in its sequel as a sort of unofficial theme. John Carpenter would go on to riff on the ideas presented in Tubular Bells in his iconic score for Halloween in 1978, and Tubular Bells now conjures up an instant sense of ancient foreboding and ambiguous threat. When it comes to iconic film music in the 1970s, this piece of music is right up there with some of the other all-time classics. There is so much more that could be said about this masterful film, but for the sake of leaving this episode at a reasonable length, we will end our deep dive into the world of The Exorcist there. We will be returning to this world in the new year to take another look at William Peter Blatty and his follow-up novel to The Exorcist, Legion, and his own film adaptation of that novel that was so unfortunately titled The Exorcist 3. So look forward to that and catch up on The Exorcist 3 if you haven't already. Arrow Video have put out an awesome Blu-ray release of the film, with both cuts of the film included. Before we say goodbye for the week, let's have a quick look at the year in film that was 1973. Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now is one of my very favourite films, and makes for a pretty great companion piece to The Exorcist. Two films redefining what horror cinema could look like in the 1970s in two very different ways. The Wicker Man, Main Streets, Soylent Green, and Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain are all favourites of mine from this year. In March, Five Fingers of Death is released in America, becoming a surprise success and kickstarting a kung fu craze in North America. In August, Westworld is the first feature film to use digital image processing. 
On July 20th, martial arts and screen legend Bruce Lee passes away, just six days before Enter the Dragon is released to cinemas. At the 1974 Academy Awards, The Sting wins big, with seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director for George Roy Hill, and Best Original Screenplay for David S. Ward. Best Actor goes to Jack Lemmon for Save the Tiger, and Best Actress goes to Glenda Jackson for A Touch of Class. The Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, of course, goes to William Peter Blatty for The Exorcist. The five most commercially successful films around the world in 1973 would be Magnum Force, Live and Let Die, American Graffiti, The Sting, and of course, The Exorcist. Thanks for listening to the Blue Rose Film Podcast. Major sources for this episode include Mark Comer's BFI Classics published analysis on The Exorcist and the 1998 documentary The Fear of God. There'll be links to these sources in the show notes. You can support this podcast by leaving a review or a like, or even better, just sharing it with a friend. You can get in touch by emailing us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com, or you can just find us on socials and get in touch there. If you have thoughts on The Exorcist, or really any other film, I'd love to hear them, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. For those of you who don't follow Blue Rose on Instagram, it's a great way to connect with me and a bunch of other people who just love talking about films. The handle is bluerose.filmreview. I hope to see you over there. Also, don't forget to check out the blog, where you can read more pieces by myself about great films and continue the conversation. Thanks to Acast for hosting the show, and thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music. That's all for now, and I'll see you next week. But until then, remember... The power of Christ compels you! Take care.